If you want to follow along, I'm going to read from John's Gospel. It's on page 1137 of the Bible that's in the pew and uh, rack in front of you. You just follow along on the screen, or if you want to follow along on one of your digital devices, you can do that as well. We're just going to read the first uh, 20 verses of that chapter and uh, begin to try to understand uh, its meaning and application to our lives. Hear the word of the Lord as I read from verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, who commanded us to stone such a woman, so what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they had heard it, they went one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would also know my father. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. May God help us to understand this, his word. I want to thank you uh, for last week attending uh, so many of you, the pastor's forum that we had uh, following this service. We've put together a kind of a summary of our time on paper and in a digital form. You can get the digital on our website and through our app. But we've also, for those that would like a hard copy, have printed some and left them in the Welcome Center. And in preparing for the uh, the text here and what this text tells you, let me tell you a story about a, a, a man. He'll become more known to you as I go. 
His name was Leslie uh, King. Leslie um, Lindsay or Lynch King. Anyway, his mother, uh, Dorothy, uh, was an incredibly strong woman. I, I say she's incredibly strong because of what she decided to do in 1914 would have been an unheard of act. You see, in 1913, she had married a very violent man, Leslie King Sr. And he beat her from the beginning of their honeymoon all the way through the day where he came at her with a butcher knife. And that night, she decided in order to save herself and her brand new uh, baby, Leslie King Jr.'s life, she would flee that home in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, across the river uh, to Council Bluff, Iowa. And she hid out for three days from this man, waiting for her father to come and rescue her and her baby and take them home uh, to Illinois. It's in Illinois that she files for divorce. And understand, this is 1914, where women did not leave their homes, didn't even leave very violent men. She did and was willing to take on all of the societal and cultural shame of being a single parent in order to save herself and save her child. She eventually, as young Leslie is beginning to uh, grow, Uh, settled in Grand Rapids, Michigan. There she meets a a Christian man. And he marries her and adopts Leslie. In fact, he changes his name after himself. He makes sure that this young boy gets the right teachers, the right coach, the right Boy Scout leader, takes him to church. Every Sunday. When he's about 16 years old, this boy has started to work at the burger joint across the street from his high school in order to make a little extra money. In walks his birth father 16 years later and says, where is Leslie Lynch King Jr.? The 16-year-old boy had never heard of that name because when he was... Uh, one years old, his name uh, became uh, Gerald R. Ford, Jr., who would grow up to be a congressman for decades from Michigan and then later become the vice president in 1973 and president in 1974. I tell you the story because his story is complex. His story is complex because we want to reduce everything down to an easy idea, an easy uh, brush where there's clear colors that we can understand. In 1974, he pardons Richard Nixon, the president of the United States, and the conspiracy theorist said he did it because there was some quid pro quo. That is, there was this this agreement between Gerald R. Ford and Nixon, if he would pardon him, he would make him vice president, which ultimately would make him president, because Richard Nixon knew he was going to resign. There's no evidence of that, but that was the conspiracy. Another one was simply that 
that Ford wanted the nation to move past Watergate and the mistrust of government coming out of Vietnam and the protest. And there's some of that because even Ford said in his little inaugural address, our long national nightmare has come to an end. But if you really want to know what he thought, you have to listen to his son, Stephen Ford. He said, my dad sat me down and explained why he did it. He said, son, whenever you get into a position where you can do something for someone, it is always better to give grace than just simply justice. He said our nation needed grace, not more justice. Where in the world would Gerald R. Ford, Jr. learn about grace? He learned it from his father, Gerald R. Ford, Sr., in the church he took them. We want to make everything simplistic. Because it's easy to make judgments from simplicity than it is from complexity. Which brings us to this story about this woman. It's not a simple story about adultery. It's quite complex. It's complex from the start because the oldest copies that we have of John's Gospel do not contain this story. It's not contained anywhere else in the Bible. And it's not until other copies of John were found that we have this text. Now, this text was quoted in the 2nd century, the 3rd century, and the 4th century by pastors and theologians. So it was already circulating even if it wasn't in the copies of John that we had. I tell you that because even how we receive this text is not simple. And I'm going to save this story to last because of that. I want to show you that this story is only one of three complexities of this passage. And I'll draw an application at the end about how to live with complexity as a church. The very first complexity I want to draw your attention to is Jesus' conversations with these Pharisees. Not the the ones that bring the woman, but a little later he's at the temple. How do we know he's at the temple? Verse 20 tells us that Jesus has come to the temple, and this is the same period of time that we saw last week. It's just a different day that he was there. So it's the festival of tabernacles or the festival of booths that Jews celebrated annually. In fact, if you lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem, you were required to attend if you're a man. And so one of the things they did is they they set up all these tents around Jerusalem and they called those booths because back in the Old Testament, they were commanded to, to do this to remember They were to remember the days in which they lived in booths in the wilderness, in tents. And that God was present with them and God provided for them. We looked at that last week. This is the same occurrence, except in verse 20 it says, 
a specific location. It's in the treasury. Now, the treasury tends to be the part, if you'll know that there's a, a holy place in the center and it's covered, then inside it, it's a holy of holies. But on the outside, there are three courts, the court of men, the court of women, and the court of Gentiles. This is going on in the court of women, the treasury. And during the festival, they would have brought out 13 large receptacles. They look like upside-down trumpets. Thirteen, because to be part of this festival, remember this festival is on a celebration of God's provision, specifically around the harvest time. And so they were to bring offerings, designated offerings. There were 12 designated offerings. Each of these trumpets were designated for a particular offering, like we did for an offering for mercy and specifically uh, to go to Romania. They would have had 12 of those. They actually had a 13th, but it was undesignated giving. Can you imagine? We don't take up one offering, but we take up 13 of them every Sunday. That's the idea of these big receptacles that they were to walk by. And I told you that there last week about one of the two main celebrations that went on during this activity, during this festival. I told you last week that the priest would take a golden pitcher from inside the temple and walk a parade of people down to the pool of Siloam, dip it into the water and bring it back and pour it onto the altar. And that's where Jesus announced, I'm the living water. Now, a little bit later... Jesus uh, comes to the temple on the day of lights, which is at the first night of the festival of booths. They have these four humongous columns in the, the temple that would rise up to the level of the highest wall of the temple. And then they put these humongous bowls that would hold 65 liters of oil on top of these columns. And these young boys would climb on these ladders first to fill these bowls up with oil. And then, right before a dusk, they would climb these ladders and light those bowls so that they would illuminate the whole temple. And in fact, the whole city could see the temple lit by these four torches. The reason I tell you that is because they would begin to dance from dusk till dawn that God is is the fire in the wilderness that gave them his presence. This is the context for verse 12 where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. You think that is the light of the world? You think that points to the light of the world? I'm the light of the world. Jesus is using these festival events in order to declare who he is and what he has come to do in the context that they're living. Because he says that, I am the glory of God in your midst. I'm the weight of God. This is what glory means. I'm the matter of God. I'm the essence of who God is in your presence. 
which is what the fire is supposed to be pointing to, and that they're celebrating that God was a pillar of fire in the wilderness. They should have danced. They should have danced to Jesus. They had been dancing, looking to the path. And here Jesus is saying, I'm in the present with you. They should have danced. Why don't they dance? Sometimes, in our quiet times, in our devotions, we don't dance. Why don't we dance? When we open the Bible, we don't believe it's just words. We don't believe it's just cool things that people wrote 2,000 years ago, and sometimes longer than that. It is God. Jesus says, I am the Word. And I was with God. And I am God. When we open the Scriptures, and this is my struggle too, I spend almost all day, every day, with the Word. Studying it so I can say something. As opposed to reading it for devotion. That's my danger. What's yours? That's what I, when I picture these guys dancing all night and Jesus walks in and says, I'm the light of the world that you've been dancing to, and they not dance, I think of us, not them. We're not dancing. Why? It's not simple. It's not simple. We want to run to, don't have enough faith. We don't, we don't believe. They certainly don't seem to believe. Jesus walks in and first says, I am the, the living water that you've been wanting, that you've been pouring on the altar. He's talking about his death, by the way. He now walks in and says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the glory of God. I'm the matter. I'm the substance. I'm the real thing. And they don't dance. And we want to make it simply about belief and unbelief. Faith and no faith. And that's true. Don't get me wrong. They don't, they don't believe. But it's more complex than that. Do you see what Jesus begins talking to them about? Way back in verse 12. They're in darkness. That is, unbelief doesn't create darkness. Darkness creates unbelief. We, we tend to think that all of the collection of the unbelief of this world is the darkness. That's like walking in the, to the middle of the night and saying, I know what causes this. Somebody turned out the lights. As if it just happened. Darkness has been part of the human definition since Genesis 3. In Genesis 3... God said, in Genesis 2, God told Adam and Eve, you can eat anything you want to. I will walk in the cool of the day, in the dawn of time with you, and have fellowship with you. But if you eat of this tree, this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, upon that day, you will surely die. And we think he's talking about their physical death. Adam isn't going to die for more than 900 years. He's not talking, and someone would say, well, he began dying that day. Well, in a way, he does. 
But no, there's a darkness that descended on the human uh, definition, on the human experience, on this world that has not been lifted yet. That doesn't mean light has not come into the darkness. But darkness is still with us until he comes back. That's why there's no sun and moon and stars in the new heavens and the new earth. Because we have him. And he dispels all darkness. I want you to see the complexity and the application of that when you begin to think about your friends and your family and your neighbors and the people you work with. They don't believe because they're children of darkness. Not because they don't believe. You see, what's the solution to someone who doesn't believe? They just need knowledge. Because if, if you could make the argument right, if you, could, if you could just convince them, then they would believe. But that misunderstands the cause of the unbelief being darkness and what they need is light. They still need the same thing you and I need, which is Jesus. He did, notice that Jesus never said, I bring the light. That's important because we tend to think that Jesus brings a philosophy or an ethic. And Jesus says, I, don't, I, I have an ethic, I have a philosophy, but that's, I don't say that I bring that. I am the light. And because he is the light, wherever Jesus is, is light. And so wherever you go and you represent Christ, you bring light. Don't you understand that? Wherever you are, you're in the middle of a conversation about what you ought to do, what, what, what is good and beautiful and lovely. You're able to bring the gospel. You're able to bring the light to there. You don't have to say, hey, let me tell you about a philosophy that I'm following. Or here's a work ethic for you. You can talk about the person. And I think that helps us when we begin to see people or ourselves. Let me, let me leave always looking at the other person, but look inside. The reason you and I struggle is that though we have the light, darkness still is here. And because darkness is still here, we still struggle and stumble in the darkness, even though we have the light. And so, I'm not saying don't feel guilty, but understand what the struggle is. It's not simply you choose. It's more complex than that. Some people grow up in horrible homes. And if it wasn't for Dorothy's, it could have been horrible. And not just for Leslie, but for a nation. Don't you see? It's not just that simple. And it allows us to enter into someone else's struggle, not trying to change their philosophy or their ethic, but bringing light into their darkness. And when someone comes to you in the midst of your struggles who is also a follower of Jesus, they're bringing light into your own darkness. 
So that's the first complexity of this text. What's the result of that? Because people live in darkness, they end up judging according to the darkness. Isn't that what they do? Jesus, Jesus said, you judge me? I judge no one. But even if I did judge someone, I would have the right to do it. Secondly, and I skipped over this, verses 13 and 14. Me, do you all realize Hugh Hefner's father was a pastor? Do you know that Joseph Stalin studied for the priesthood before he became a dictator? Did you know Mao Zedong attended missionary school before he became the murderer of tens of millions of Chinese? That's how dark dark is. That's not just unbelief. The second one in verses 13 and 14 has to do with identity. You see that in verses 13 and 14 when Jesus starts talking about his own identity. You see that? He says, he said to the Pharisees, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. How does he know? For I, for is another way of saying on account of, I know where I came from and where I am going. We struggle with identity today. Let me tell you something. Humans have struggled with identity since Genesis 3. What's the first thing that Adam says when God says, where are you? We're hiding. It's an identity question. He's not asking physically located, like he needs a GPS of where Adam and Eve are. He's God. He's trying to see, Adam, did your identity change? Because you did what I told you not to do. What I told you would change your identity. We think that image is identity. And we try to control that image by, by putting out that part about us that we want people to see. Isn't that, isn't that what's behind uh, the idea of, of, of social media? I'm not saying social media is bad, but it does reflect us. Our attempts to control the image by how we feel about ourselves or what we want to feel about ourselves if we can convince enough people about our image. You know, ask somebody, how many friends you got? They're not talking about the physical people. They're talking about the people that are on their Facebook page. Or how many likes did you get for that picture? Buying name brand clothes so that people will think better of you because of the brand in which you have. Don't, don't hear me say don't go buy name brand clothes. Gosh, Ivanka Trump's gonna, Trump is going to be mad at me. I'm not trying to say name brand is bad. I'm just saying it's the reason we do those things tend to be caught up in our idea of image. We're almost enslaved to the image. And here Jesus is talking about something bigger than that. I'm not talking about your image. I'm talking about your identity from which your image comes from. And Jesus defines identity in two ways. Where I come from and where I am going. If, what's the, one of the first questions we ask each other when we meet each other? Where are you from? I, that's usually after, what do you do? Again, image. But where are you from? 
Now, if you have an accent like mine, you know it's not from around here. And typically we answer our hometowns, we answer maybe the state where we grew up, or maybe the place that we currently live. And Jesus is saying there's a more profound identity than the state or the city or the place that you are from. Because he doesn't say Bethlehem. Jesus is, is talking about heaven is his identity. Do you, do you recognize that your identity begins in Genesis 1, in creation? When, when somebody asks, where are you from? Do you say, you know, I was created in the image of God. And because of that, I have dignity. I have meaning and purpose. God didn't just say, I created a bunch of uh, creatures like me. He said, I'm also going to give you a, a meaning and a purpose for existence. Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. There's a big meaning and purpose. That's what Jesus is saying when I know where I'm come from. And I know where I'm going. When somebody asks you, nobody ever asks where are you going. Unless you're going off to the store and leaving your house. Do you ever answer, well, I know where I'm going. I'm going to the new earth. Are you crazy? But that's where you're going. We got this impression that we're going from here to heaven. And for some of us, that is going to be the first bus stop. But you're going to get back on that bus and you're coming back here. The Bible doesn't say that earth is going to heaven. The Bible says heaven is coming to earth. And that everything that we see that is broken in this world is going to be made new. The next time somebody asks you where you're going, tell them the new earth. Where everything that is broken will be made new. You get that? That changes everything about your outlook of your identity. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're created in the image of God with all that dignity and purpose. But you're going to the new earth. And everything you do between where you came from and where you're going is in light of that reality. That's why everything is more complex than just simply, let's create an image so that people will like me. God likes you. Who else do you need to like you? Which brings us to the story incredible story that is full of complexity in of its own. It's complex because there's something going on beneath this poor woman. Our text says that this woman was caught in adultery and brought. The scribes and the Pharisees, she was caught in adultery. You know, the law demands, Deuteronomy 22... That if you're going to accuse somebody of adultery, you've got to have two witnesses. Do you know what that implies? That they set a trap for her. They set a trap, not just for Jesus, but for her. And Deuteronomy says, not only are you to stone the woman who gets caught in adultery, it also says you're supposed to stone the man. Where's the man? 
you can, you can infer from that that maybe he's part of the plot. Maybe he's in on it. Or maybe just simply they needed her for the second trap and didn't need him. It doesn't really matter because ultimately the complexity goes another level down that not only did they entrap her, but they're seeking to entrap Jesus by her entrapment. They come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we've got this woman who has broken the law. She's got a serious sin. What are you going to do about that? They want to do that because they want to, they want to juxtapose two things we hold dear to our hearts. The word of God and God's people. People. God's creation with dignity and purpose and meaning. And says, Jesus, choose. Knowing full well that if he chooses the word of God and takes sin seriously, that he's never going to be able to go to the people and say, I'm here for you. I've come for you. I'm the light of the world. But if the other, if he chooses her, if he chooses to uphold her dignity and her purpose and meaning, then they're going to say, well, he doesn't love God because God's serious about sin. So much of the Old Testament talks about sin. You notice what Jesus does? We have no idea what he's writing, but he's giving time for people to think this through. And the first thing he tells them is, guys, the first one of you who has never sinned, you can throw the first stone. But the rest of you, you're disqualified to judge. I want you to notice something in the passage. Who's the first people to walk away? You can say it. Old people. We've got to get used to saying that. Old people. Why? That's what my granddaughters always say. It's their favorite word. Why? And they say it just like that. Why? Why do old people get it sometimes before young people? There's something about age. And obviously it's not universal. There's something about age that gives you better perspective about life. The complexity of life. You know what it's like when you, when you first uh, get out of high school, you first get out of college, you're so idealistic about the way the world works. It's black and white. Everybody's got in their category. You're quick to judge. You know, as you get a little older and you, you've experienced some of life, you've experienced some of the complexities yourself, and you've seen these complexities in other people. And so you give a little in the complexity. So when Jesus says the first one who hasn't sinned, they're thinking, oh, I'm disqualified, I'm gone. The younger people are trying to categorize that. Is he talking about real bad sin like this girl? Or is he talking about less sin, acceptable sins? They're, they're trying to work that through, but even they give up and walk away. And then Jesus turns to the woman. I, I guess he didn't look up and he just said, has anybody condemned you? And he knows that because nobody's thrown a stone. And she says, no, well then, neither do I condemn you and go and sin no more. I want to show you that the answer to complexity is still Jesus. He was the answer to simplicity, but he's also the answer to complexity. Look how he deftly handles this idea of, are you going to uphold the word of God? Are you going to uphold the dignity and purpose and meaning of people? Look what I said. I don't condemn you. The only way Jesus can say that is because he's going to be condemned for her in her place. The only way that Jesus can say to her, I'm going to condemn, I don't condemn you, is that he's looking at the cross. The only way he can say, I forgive you, is that he's going to absorb the cost. And therefore, he's taking sin very seriously. 
but he's also treasuring the dignity and meaning and purpose of humanity. Do you remember, you remember on the cross? We tend to think that forgiveness means you're out of the consequences. It does mean you're out of the consequence of judgment with God. That is, the wrath of God that's due sin is removed because it was emptied on Jesus. Not because it was dissipated over time, just simply because it was emptied on Christ. But on the cross, he's got this thief right there. And he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. The only way you can say that is he knows that he's dying for his sins. But did he get to climb down from that cross? There are earthly consequences that though they can be really, really hard and painful, they don't last. They're not permanent stains. They're not permanent fixtures, which is why you have to know where you're going. You see the beauty of the complexity here is that you and I get to live in a, in a community in which we bring the light that answers the question of, do you choose between taking sin seriously or, or the complexity of humans in their, in their dignity and meaning and purpose? And the way to deal with that is through forgiveness. That's how we face complexity. Let me just give you this application. What do we want to see? All right, it's not rhetorical. We want to see this place filled with sinners. We don't want it filled with people who think they don't sin. We want it filled with people who know they are robust in their sin. Because there is forgiveness. But that requires us to bring people here. Nobody wakes up on Sunday morning and thinks, you know, EP, they've got this cool piano player. I just want to go hear him. Nobody thinks that. Sorry, David. Nobody thinks that pastor, man, I saw him on TV last year. People who don't, who have the complexity of not knowing Jesus, who don't believe, don't think about going to church. Therefore, we have to bring the light to them, which requires us to have relationships with them. How does that happen? Well, one thing is we need to make sure that your entire life isn't centered around us here. That you have enough margin of your life that you're around people who are not like us. That are different than us. Now I'm not talking about sin, I'm just talking about don't believe. And so I I ask you to consider taking two hours of your week. Just two hours. And volunteer somewhere in the city. Go. Go to the pregnancy center and say, hey, I just want to want to volunteer. I cannot imagine them turning you away. 
If you said to the hospital, and I want to give two hours a week to serving you at the hospital, I cannot imagine Anne Arundel Hospital saying no. There's not a ministry in town that ministers uh, to uh, the disadvantaged, those that are poor, that would say, no, don't come here. Now, it may not be Christian. It may, it, it may not be a, a Christian ministry. But that's not the purpose. The purpose is so that two things. One is that the city gets better because you've brought the light in. But secondly... So you have friends who are not like you. If all we do is with us, we're a light in a, under a bushel that no one sees but us. The only way is if we go out there, but don't go out there with simplicity. It's not simple. I know we've got our categories, but it's more complex. And if you go out there recognizing the complexity of of human beings, I think you can actually befriend people who are not like us. So I encourage you, as obviously Jesus didn't mean that application because that's not what he draws. He draws the application that I am the light of the world. I'm taking that to, in order for them to see the light, they're not coming here to see it. Not without you bringing them which requires you to have a relationship with them. That's how I got to that application. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you sent the light of the world here. We're glad that Jesus stood up in front of those four huge columns of light and said, I'm the light of the world. I'm what you're dancing for. And I pray, Father, as you bring men and women and children to our campus who come to faith, who leave the darkness into the light, that we will dance before you. Because everyone who comes to know you, everyone who comes in uh, to the sheep pen, everyone who comes to faith is a joy and an opportunity to rejoice. The reason even that the church is still here. I thank you for the men and women and children in this church who love you and follow you. That you have enabled them. You have empowered them because you are in them. To go into this world for your glory and to bring light. Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.